Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm Nick Cheesman, a research fellow at the Australian National University. Today I'm talking with Christopher Duncan, an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Rutgers University, about his 2013 book, Violence and Vengeance, Religious Conflict and Its Aftermath in Eastern Indonesia, published by Cornell University Press. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. As some of our listeners may not be familiar with the events you describe in this book or may have heard about them at the time but have forgotten in the interim, can you please begin with a little bit of background? Where in Eastern Indonesia uh, did this religious conflict occur and when? So uh, the conflict that I write about took place in the province of North Maluku, uh, and it began in uh, August of 1999, uh, and it lasted for about uh, eight or nine months until uh, mid-2000, July of 2000 was the last uh, significant violence, and it was largely centered on the island of, of Halmahera, which is the largest island in the province of, of North Maluku. And can you explain a little bit about why the conflict mattered enough for you to have written a book about it and how it was that you found yourself writing on that conflict in North Blue? Um, well, actually, I, I started working on the conflict. I started working on uh, in North Blue, in Homohera in 1995. Um, and uh, I had no plans, actually, on studying the violence. I had just received a fellowship to go back and continue some of my earlier uh, research, which focused on the forest-dwelling hunters and gatherers that live on Homohera, called the, the Forest Tabello or the Tugutil. And in between getting my grant, or actually in between submitting the grant uh, for this research on the Tugutil, the Forest Tabello, and receiving the grant, the violence broke out, and so it wasn't possible to actually go do that research anymore. So I actually ended up postponing that grant, and I was at ANU uh, as a research fellow and decided to study the conflict instead. So it really was just um, sort of happenstance. Uh, I had a grant to go to North Maluku, and the violence happened. And so I decided, uh, since I had two years <laughs> to do field work, uh, that I would study uh, the conflict. It seemed like a more important issue at the time than my original topic, which was studying the indigenous religion of um, the forest of Bello. So that just sort of happened. It wasn't, it wasn't by choice. And for scholars who don't uh, concentrate on Indonesia. What is it about the conflict that you think may be of special importance? Like, again, that makes it um, worthwhile writing a book about and, and having scholars like myself read. Well, I mean, it's, I don't know that it's specifically uh, interesting. It, it's it's one of many different conflicts that happened to happen uh, at that particular time in Indonesian history. So you had North Maluku, 
you had Muluku centered around Ambon and Seram, you had Poso and Santo Sulawesi, and, and so on and so forth. I think you've seen a, there's a variety of books that look at all of those conflicts. Like John Seidel's work uh, comes to mind. Jerry Van Clinken's book comes to mind. Um, I think that, that the North Muluku conflict is uh, of importance uh, to a certain degree just because of the the level of uh, and the ferocity of, of the violence. I mean, I guess that happened in, in Ambon and, and Oposo and else, other places as well. But for me, just the way that in North Maluku, people went from living next door to, to or living in neighboring villages of different faiths to walking next door or walking, you know, 50, uh, 100 meters down the beach and killing their neighbors. To me, it was just very interesting how it could go from being Nonviolent to violent uh, at such a level so quickly. And you refer to work by Jerry Van Klink and John Seidel, but your own study, you situate, um, well, you, lo- you, you locate your study in relation to theirs, but with a different orientation. Can you please explain a bit more about their work and also how you approach the um, issue of religious conflict differently from them? Well, I think my, my general take on religious conflict and the way it differs from the very, most of the scholars who write about uh, religious or communal conflict in, in Indonesia, whether it's John Seidel and Jerry Van Klinken with their entire uh, Indonesian-focused uh, research or people like Jamie Davidson who writes on, on Kalimantan, um, is that they tend to focus on politics, on the elite, so Jerry Van Klinken, for example, is looking at how uh, political objectives of certain players led them to use religion, uh, in the case of North Maluku, to achieve their goals. So religion is always sort of um, a, a smokescreen for what is really the, the political and economic objectives of an elite. So it's how our generals and mid-level civil servants and governors and uh, bupatis trying to uh, meet their goals, whereas in my con- in the, my book, I look at the people who picked up the machetes, uh, you know, farmers, uh, fishermen, the people who actually went out and did the killing, the people who, uh, if you look at the political science arguments, of, of, uh, I hate to keep calling on Jerry Van Klinken, but he, his name is just in my head, that if you look at Klinken or, or Seidel, uh, they didn't have these larger economic or political uh, goals in mind. They stood to gain virtually nothing from this violence, yet they're the ones who went out uh, and, and massacred their neighbors or in some cases killed their own family members. And so my interest was in looking at why um, these, these, these peasants, these farmers, these fishermen, why they saw this as religious, um, what the role of religion was. And so rather than just dismissing religion as, oh, well, this was the, the fall line that the political elite chose to um, exploit to create the violence, to sort of look at why these uh, the participants decided, hey, you know what, this makes sense to me. I should go kill uh, my Christian neighbor or I should go kill my Muslim neighbor. And, and one of my arguments is that in the works of, of largely political scientists, that is usually not taken for granted or is taken for granted, the way people see religion uh, and the importance of religion. Religion is almost always dismissed. Um, And anthropology, my my own discipline, I think, has not been very strong uh, in that as well. Anthropologists also tend to dismiss 
uh, religion. And I, I think part of it might have been that uh, when I got back from finishing this research, um, I found myself uh, in a religious studies department uh, at Arizona State. And so uh, that sort of forced me to look at religion more and more. And I think more importantly, when I talk to people in the field, when I talk to North Millicans, they always talked about religion. So actually, even my first publication about this, which was in the journal Indonesia, I said it's not just about religion. That's too simple. But then in going back between um, 2000 uh, and 2012, I realized that people were constantly talking about religion. And to simply say, oh, it's not about religion, to me sort of didn't help us understand why people were, were doing the killing uh, and, and why the violence took the level it did. And just as importantly, how is North Maluku recovering from that violence? How have communities rebuilt or not uh, in the aftermath? And what has been the role uh, of religion? So in this regard, if I can quote from your first chapter, you say the challenge of the book or the challenge of research of this sort is to explain the role of religion in the violence without essentializing it, while at the same time appreciating that local communities were involved in this very process of essentialization. Can you please explain that remark and how did you meet that challenge in your own work? In all fairness, I should I should give credit for that remark to where it comes from. That was actually uh, uh, paraphrasing something that one of my colleagues, Richard Fox, from the University of Heidelberg in Germany, uh, said to me. So the idea was to is that you know one of the responses to people who write about religious violence or ethnic violence is that you know religious identity, ethnic identity, they're not these primordial identities. They're not these essentialized identities. People have multifaceted identities. So if we take, for example, um, somebody from Omahara, they, you know, they have their religious identity. They have their re regional identity. What part of the province are they from? They have their ethnic identity. They have a class identity. Um, and even their religion identity, they might be Pentecostal versus uh, mainstream Protestant or Catholic uh, versus Seventh-day Adventist. Um, and so people often make the argument that if you say it's religious violence, you're, you're sort of essentializing it, you're making, you're too simplifying it, and you're giving religion this uh, primordial power that it doesn't necessarily have over people's um, identity and people's decision-making. So part of the challenge of the book was to say, okay, look, uh, people are Christian and Muslim, and they haven't always been killing each other. They have multifaceted identities. But during this conflict, a lot of those multifaceted identities crystallized uh, around religion, and particularly in the aftermath. When people talk about the conflict, they would mention, for example, oh, here were some economic incentives for why these people took part in the violence. Or they might say, oh, here are some political incentives. Or here was some you know, ethnic tensions that led to violence. But when they explain it, they would always say, oh, but that's just what, you know, insert religion does. That's just what Christians do. That's just what Muslims do. So, you know, there was an economic incentive, but it's because of their religion that they were this sort of violence. Or we had a political incentive, but really it was about religion, and that's why we did it. And as the violence um, uh, became more focused on religion, and in the aftermath, as people were trying to understand it, the, the, this narrative of religious violence uh, sort of uh, 
displaced the other ways people talked about the violence. And then the other idea is that uh, it's this idea, it's called wartime essentialism. I take it, I took it from a Croatian anthropologist whose name slips my mind uh, at the moment. Um, and because I think Bosnia, uh, the former Yugoslavia, is a wonderful example of people saying, well, this isn't about religion, it's about other things. Um, but one of her arguments is that, yes, there were many factors at play in the, in the conflict in the former Yugoslavia, but during the conflict, people have what she calls war-induced essentialism, where during the conflict, people set aside their other identities and focus on the religious identity at hand. So, for example, if we go back to Homahera, when uh, a Christian militia invaded a village and they were killing people, somebody couldn't raise their hand and say, oh, I'm not really Muslim. You know, I just have it on my ID card. That's, that's not who I am. I mean, that wasn't their choice. They were a Muslim because they lived in this community. They didn't have any other identity that mattered, uh, usually at that particular time. Sometimes kinship would come in and people would rescue a cousin or rescue a family member. But in general, it was religion. People were deciding who to kill based on their religion. People were deciding who not to kill based on their religion. Uh, and even when people got involved in the violence for other reasons, so sometimes people got involved because they just wanted to seek revenge for the death of family members. Um, it stayed focused on religion. Uh, in some cases, uh, as I say somewhere in the book, um, it, was, it became very important for young men to take part in the violence um, in terms of proving their masculinity and, and looking, uh, looking good to neighborhood girls. But, you know, any violence they waged stayed focused on religion. So it really became essentialized around religion. And the challenge was to, to talk about that without having political scientists and anthropologists sort of say, well, you're just, you're essentializing religion. You don't clearly understand the dynamics of, of what was going on. And you say that you didn't arrive at this position immediately upon arrival at the field site, but rather that you found uh, there was a disjuncture between the empirical data that you were collecting in the early stages of your research on the violence and the narratives of violence that you kept hearing. Can you explain a bit about uh, how you conducted the research and give us a bit more of a sense of the kinds of engagements and discussions you had with participants in the violence on the ground? Uh, well, the research was basically, um, I spent, it was 18 months, the bulk of it was 18 months uh, in the field, um, uh, the initial, I think, four or five months I spent largely with um, forced migrants, internally displaced persons in the province of North Sulawesi, which is a neighboring uh, province. And there was 35,000 or so largely Christian um, forced migrants in, in North Sulawesi. And so I would basically, uh, in that stage, would spend most of my time um, you know, hanging out at refugee camps, uh, interviewing individual um, uh, people in camps doing group interviews, going around and, and meeting with different uh, uh, forced migrants in various parts of the province. And it was largely uh, open-ended interviews focusing on their, their understandings of the conflict. And then I went to, to um, Omahera and Ternate, Tidore, uh, and a couple other places in North Maluku. And it was largely the same thing, largely doing uh, individual interviews, focus group interviews. Um, most of my work was, uh, in terms of the interviews, was with, with Christians uh, because one of the things I found when 
I got to North Maluku was that Christians were very, very open in talking about the violence. Uh, you know, had no qualms telling me about horrific atrocities uh, that they'd committed. Um, you know, very pleased to go into great detail and talk about what had happened and, and why they'd done it. Uh, on the other hand, I found that uh, Muslim communities were a bit more uh, reluctant uh, to talk to me about these things when I first got there. They were happy to talk about their uh, views on North Moluccan history, happy to talk about their problems of, of being uh, displaced uh, and living in a refugee camp in Ternate or something, or in Galela, uh, along those lines. But if you started to talk about the violence, the general response I got from Muslims was, well, let's not talk about the violence. Let's, let's, that's the past. Let's focus on the future. So what I did uh, for that was I had one research assistant who was a lecturer at the uh, um, Islamic Seminary in uh, Manado, which is in North Sudwest, the neighboring province. I sent him off on his own uh, to North Maluku for a while with some surveys, uh, and he interviewed um, forced migrants in refugee camps in Ternate. And then I was working with a uh, professor from the Islamic University of uh, Kalimantan, which is in Indonesian Borneo. And I sent him off for what was it, three weeks a month uh, on his own. And he went all over um, North Maluku interviewing Muslims. And he's actually a former journalist, and he was interviewing Muslims. And uh, it was just fascinating when I got the, the tapes and the transcripts of his interviews because they were just like the tapes and transcripts from my interviews with Christians. So, in fact, some of the very same uh, Muslim individuals who wouldn't talk to me about the violence would talk to him in great, great detail. Um, and it was through all of these discussions that, uh, to, to me and, and to my research assistants, that this notion of religion really came in uh, to the fore. And it was, it was sort of an evolutionary process, too, because when I first got there, um, I was, you know, I had some friends who were in rather high places and I would talk to them and they would always sort of downplay the level, Christian friends, and they would downplay the level of Christian atrocities. And, and I mean, let's be blunt, they would basically lie to me. And it was interesting that as I learned more and as I found out more details, uh, they would be like, okay, fine, but we're not supposed to talk about that. And so yeah, over the course of 18 months, um, I was really able to, to sort of gather, a, a, I think, a really good uh, set of data. And I think part of what helped this was that uh, it was my second time in uh, North Maluku. So I had, I had friends. I had contacts from my field work in 95 and 96 uh, and from another visit in 94. So, for example, I had lots of contacts in a, an ethnic group called the Modole who took part in one of the, the really big... Uh, violent episodes, and it was really easy to just step right back in there and talk to them. And then I can, I can, I can speak a little bit of a language called Tobello, and that was always helpful in talking to people, and you could sort of uh, get people to open up a bit, and then it always gave me a little bit of leeway because I knew officials, and they would let me go to certain places, and you could always say, well, I'm visiting old friends and family, and, and the authorities would let you go places. Um, and I think it really helped. You know, you probably know this. When you go back to a field site for the second time or the third time, every time you go, it gets that much more productive. 
and I, for the sake of this book, it happened to be lucky for me that this was one of those times where it got that much more productive. In the second chapter of the book that deals with the historical preludes to the conflict in 1999-2000, can you tell us a little bit about the contents of that chapter and in particular explain something about the composition of the population where the violence occurred, um, ethnic and religious, and how it is that um, uh, certain resentments and tensions built up to the point that they resulted in the violence that you studied? One of the main points of, of that chapter, in addition to laying the historical background for, for the conflict, was in part a reaction to a very common uh, phrase or idea that was very prominent when people would talk about violence in uh, North Maluku or in the neighboring province of Maluku to the south. Um, Indonesia as a whole is 85% uh, or more Muslim. Uh, if you get to Maluku, um, it's about 50 50%. Uh, and if you get to North Maluku, it goes back to Eighty-five, fifteen, about what Indonesia is. But one of the common phrases everybody said when they talked about the violence in Maluku and North Maluku was that, "Oh, these were, you know, emblematic of religious tolerance and peaceful solidarity uh, in Indonesia prior to this violence." So this was just a shock that you know these Muslim Christians who had always just gotten along so well would suddenly. Uh, resort to violence because this wasn't like the rest of Indonesia where you had religious tensions over Muslims and Christians. Um, and part of my point was to show that that's just not true. You had tons and tons of tension between Muslims uh, and Christians. Um, going back to the very first time there were Muslims and Christians uh, in North Maluku, which again, to put the caveat in, is not saying I'm essentializing this and that these violent Tensions have been there since the first Christians arrived in 15, 1511, I think, was when the first Spaniards, or first Portuguese got there, and the Jesuits set up missionaries and mission stations in the 1530s and 1540s. But more to show just how uh, these two world religions have played off each other uh, in over the course of, of 500 years. Uh, and more importantly, since the beginning of the New Order government, which was the Indonesian military dictatorship under President Suharto from about the mid-1960s up until uh, this violence. And so I wanted to show how, uh, in my idea, my argument in part is that religion has been such an important factor in people's identity uh, in the last, almost the last half of the 20th century in, in North Maluku, that it polarized people around their religious identity. So North Maluku has it's 85% Muslim, 15% Christian. Um, depending on what which linguist you ask, uh, there's 17 or more different linguistic communities. So you've got those identities of these different uh, linguistic communities, which often co uh, correlate with ethnic identities. Uh, you've got rival sultanates uh, in the region, Ternate and Tidore. Um, you've got conflicts between migrants and indigenous people in the region. Um, but oftentimes these conflicts were focused on religious differences, and particularly during the New Order government, the, the Indonesian government really focused on 
um, religious identity. So kids took religious, religion was a mandatory factor uh, in schools. So everybody had to take, either you couldn't go to school unless you had a religion. So you had to pick Islam or Christianity. And again, North Maluku, those were largely your two choices. So people, their identities were reified in school. People rarely married across religious lines. So inter-ethnic marriage was common. But to marry somebody of a different faith rarely happened. It was looked upon very poorly by people. Uh, people lived in separate communities. So I think there's three examples of uh, mixed communities in the province. But otherwise... People either lived in single-faith villages or they lived in villages that were essentially divided in half, with Christians living in one part and Muslims living in another part. And so the point of that, that second chapter was to show how these uh, these sort of differences began uh, with the arrival of Christianity in the region, most specifically with the arrival of Dutch Christianity in the region in the, in the latter half of the 18th, 1800s and the early part of the 1900s, and looking at and how they then coalesced under the new order and how the new order really focused on religious identities. And one of my arguments is that the focus on religious identity in the 70s and 80s and the 90s um, made people focus on whether they were Muslim or Christian and sort of set aside their cultural similarities, whether they were from the same ethnic group. And that was set aside and they focused on, oh, well, you might be from the same ethnic, but really what's more important is I'm Muslim and you're Christian. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting because in North Maluku, uh, particularly among the Tabello, the main group I work with, um, a lot of this uh, conversion both to Islam and Christianity happened in the 20th century. And you have some families where the, the great-great-grandfather, was he was uncertain. He said, oh, here's the Christian missions. Here's the, here's the Muslim, uh, you know, proselytizer. I don't know what the right choice is. So he'd take one kid, you're a Christian. He'd take another kid, you're a Muslim. And that way he, he felt he had covered all his bets. But over the decades, those kinship relations often got swept under the carpet by these religious differences that the government uh, focused on. And if you go back to you know even the first time Christianity or Protestant Christianity arrived in the 1870s, there was always these tensions between Muslims. Uh, and Christians. So you often had uh, Muslims arguing to try to prevent uh, the, the Christian missionaries from proselytizing. Uh, and that was, a, that was a consistent problem throughout the missionary period. And then after the missionaries left, um, uh, right around World War II, you, you still had tensions where Muslims were concerned that Christians were, were building too many churches and um, Christians were concerned that Muslims were growing too fast demographically, so Christians would look at the Indonesian transmigration program, which moves uh, landless peasants, large, mainly from Java, uh, who are largely Muslim, and moves them to places like North Maluku, where there's lots of, quote-unquote, empty land. And so uh, the government had done a lot of that in the 70s and 80s, and tens of thousands of Muslim, largely Muslim migrants, and Christians saw that and felt threatened by that. Um, and so people would, would look at these changes, and they would oftentimes read religion into it. Um, and so, for example, Muslims, uh, as I mentioned in Chapter 2, one of the issues is that Muslims didn't seem to really understand uh, the politics of denominational differences within Protestant Christianity. 
So when a couple families decided to open up a Pentecostal church in a village, they would build another village. So suddenly, the Muslims would be saying, wait a second, you know, there's, there's 40 Christian families in the village, and there's 100 Muslim families in the village. We've got one mosque for 100 families. Why do they need two churches for 40 families? Who's going to fill those empty pews? That clearly, they have, they would argue, they must have some sort of proselytization agenda that they're building these churches so they can then convert, convert all these Muslims to become Christians. So that caused a lot of tension. Um, and so it was sort of the idea of that chapter was to lay the groundwork uh, just so you can understand some of the tensions, but also to, to, to sort of displace that idea that it was some sort of religious paradise of religious tolerance um, before the conflict broke out, because it, it clearly wasn't. There, there was not large-scale violence, but people didn't necessarily have a lot of Muslims didn't have a lot of Christian friends, in my experience, and Christians didn't have a lot of Muslim friends. So it's, it sort of goes back to, uh, um, this might be getting a little too inside baseball for Indonesia, or you're Australian, a little inside cricket. Um, the idea that Christian, if you're Christian in North Maluku, you, your neighbors are Christian, your schools are Christian, or you take your, some of your classes in school are Christians, you go to a Christian church, you marry a Christian uh, spouse, you end up working for Christians and Muslims do the same. So people are sort of, they're pillarized into these Muslim Christian uh, streams. And so you basically, the, the, the faith rarely interact. And uh, that, and some, some have argued that those, that lack of interaction can lead to a lot of tension. And I think you saw that in, in the violence in North Maluku and a couple other places in, uh, in Indonesia where where that happened. Causation is very important, so I'm not, I'm not dismissing causation. It's just one of the things uh, that I've found in much of the work of political scientists on violence um, in Indonesia, or elsewhere for that matter, was they're very focused, and you know, rightly so, on causation. Why did violence happen at this particular time in this particular place? And, and while that's very important, what I found was the reasons that you know, violence might break out in this place on this day and for a particular reason, but you know, three, four months down the line, or even in longer conflicts where it goes on for years, later on down the line, people are getting involved for all sorts of different reasons. And so, one of my one of the goals of, of the book was to say, look, okay, here's why the violence started. This is what we think is why the violence started. But that is largely irrelevant to what would not relevant is too strong of a word. That's important, but that we need to take into account how the violence um, grows and changes and why people get involved and how the violence in some ways sort of takes on new courses as it spreads across the province. So that was my argument for, for moving beyond um, causation. And so actually the, 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 the beginnings of the violence in are perfect. Uh, for political uh, scientists. It's, it's wonderful um, in terms of the way they look at things. So what happened was in, um, in, in Indonesia, you used to have the province of Maluku, which might have been confusing in some of my earlier answers. Um, and then in, uh, for a long time, almost from the start of Indonesian independence, the northern half of what was called the province of Maluku, uh, which is Halmahera and, and the and Tidore and Ternate, the, the, the sultanates of Tidore and Ternate, 
they wanted their own province. They argued for a new province. And for a variety of historical reasons that I won't go into, they failed in their efforts to get a new province. But in Indonesia, uh, beginning, uh, in the, I think it was 1998 maybe, or 1999, one of the things the Indonesian government did was, uh, A, it finally told the North Moluccans that, okay, you can have a new province. And then they also passed a law on decentralization, um, where uh, profits from natural resource exploitations, in part, one, one aspect of it, profits from natural resource exploitation go to the districts as opposed to the province. And so that, that becomes very important for some people in terms of how they have access to the income from mining and fisheries and uh, forestry. But in, in, in North Maluku, um, I have to go back a little bit. Uh, in 1975, a little tiny island off the, course, the coast of Homehera, uh, it's an island called Makian, which is basically a volcano that just, uh, which comes up out of the ocean. Um, that volcano was predicted to have a massive, devastating eruption that would, they thought would be very bad. Uh, so the Indonesian government moved every single ethnic Makian off of the island of Makian to Homohara. Uh So I think they moved to about 16,000 people. I could be wrong on that number, but it's around 16,000 people. They moved them all to Homohara and basically rebuilt each of the villages. So they moved each village off of the island of Makian in total, moved it to Homohara, put them all in one place uh, on land that as the Indonesian government said was empty. As is usually the case in Indonesia, the land was not empty. It was claimed by indigenous people. In this case, a mix of uh, different ethnic groups called the Pagu, the Mondole. We won't get into those details there. Um, and over the years, from 1975 on, relationships between the indigenous people and the Makian the migrants were never very good. Uh, part of the reason was that the Makian are much more, uh, they're better educated, uh, they're more focused on um, expanding their gardens. Uh, and indigenous people don't have the same level of education, they just haven't had that access yet. Uh, they're not as, um, uh, I don't know what the right word to use here is, they're not as aggressive in expanding their gardens uh, as the Makian are. Um, and it's a little bit different because for the indigenous communities, when they expand their gardens, they're expanding their gardens onto their land. Uh, whereas the Makian, when they were expanding their gardens, they were expanding it onto largely the lands of indigenous communities. To the Makian, it looked like, you know, unexploited virgin rainforest, but all of that land was claimed by uh, someone. And so you had tensions there. Uh, it erupted into low-level you know, fisticuffs and stuff like that. I think there might have been a murder uh, in the 1980s. There were a lot of tensions between the Makian and uh, indigenous people. And it's not just the indigenous people of this part of Homohara that don't like the Makian. They're generally sort of disliked uh, throughout uh, North Maluku, uh, due in part to, depending on who you ask, they would say it's jealousy over their, their success in economics and their political success. Um, they control a lot of key... Uh, political offices in the province uh, in the 1990s, and they generally tended to, to get the, their way. Um, and so what happened was they argued that, look, um, we want to have our own 
subdistrict. Right now, we're in the, the, the subdistrict of Cal, which that was where they were resettled. And Cal is the name of the one of the names of the indigenous people uh, in the region. And, and the Maquia and the migrants said, "Look, we want our own subdistrict. We want to we want to rule ourselves, govern ourselves. We don't want to be sort of tied up with these indigenous people." Um, and the problem was that when they put out the new boundaries for this new subdistrict, it included uh, a number of indigenous villages from the indigenous Pagu ethnic group. Um, and now the indigenous Pagu don't like the Maquian. Uh, they don't want to be ruled by the Maquian. And furthermore, the indigenous, the four main indigenous ethnic groups of Cow have this long uh, customary law story about how uh, they always have to be together. They have this long story about coming together and, and the unity of these four ethnic groups. And any severance of this unity is, is seen in a very negative light. And what this new subdistrict was going to do was to divide that unity. So some of the Pagu, some of the indigenous people were going to be in the new subdistrict of the migrants, and everybody else was going to be in this other the rump of the old subdistrict. And they didn't like that. Now, I should say that the indigenous people are Christian and Muslim. I don't have, never, was never able to get the exact numbers, but the migrants are 100% Muslim. The indigenous people are 90% Christian, about 10% Muslim, I think. Um, but so the, the Muslim migrants get their new district, new sub-district, and, on, and there was lots of tension around that. The, the, the people of Cal uh, protested. They said, we don't want this. They tried these various strategies, but, but they were always doomed uh, to fail because the cow have never been taken very seriously by the Indonesian government. Um, I don't have the exact numbers uh, in front of me, but uh, the Indonesian government over the last quarter of the 20th century gave away, I think it was, and this doesn't make sense, but this is how it works out. They gave away 110% of cow land to other people, um, either to the Makian migrants, to Javanese transmigrants from another island uh, in Indonesia. They gave away a lot of cow land to uh, forestry concessions, uh, to uh, sago plantations, um, and then eventually they gave a bunch of it to an Australian uh, gold mining company. Um, so the cow were never going to win this argument. So on the day this new subdistrict was to be uh, inaugurated and opened, violence broke out. So you had the migrants fighting the indigenous people. And one of the interesting parts of it was you had the Muslim indigenous peoples fighting the Muslim migrants. So some of my friends would always talk about how, you know, in the early stages on one side, you had guys yelling, uh, you know, Akbar, and the guys on the other side of the battlefield were yelling the same thing. Um, and so you had Muslims killing Muslims. Um, and so that violence only lasted a couple days. Uh, two of the indigenous villages were burnt down, um, tensions remained, and then in October of, of 99, the indigenous people, um, you know, it depends on who you ask how it started, but in the end, uh, in October of 1999, the indigenous people basically defeated the Makian and wiped them, uh, not wiped them out, but forced them all to leave Halmahera. So 16 uh, migrant villages burnt to the ground. Every single structure, except the mosques, was burned to the ground, and, and all of those people had to go. All of the migrants had to go flee to the neighboring island of Ternate. So right now, everybody in North Buluku is saying, "Oh, look what's happening!" 
in this little part of our province, it's an ethnic conflict. It's the Makian against the cow. This is not about religion. This is an ethnic conflict. Um, and this is where political scientists really like uh, explaining what happened was, so you get all of these Muslim migrants in Ternate. And one of the interesting things is when I would say in interviewing Muslims, I'd say, so we get all the Muslim migrants in Ternate. And my Muslim, my Muslim uh, informants would say, wait a second, we're not talking about Islam. We're talking about Makian. This is not about Islam yet. This is about ethnicity. And so the Makian, who are Muslim, come to Ternate, and they've, they've lost. They've been completely defeated by the indigenous people. And so they start agitating to get home. And they start saying, look, we need to get home. We need to go back and take our land. We need to seek revenge and get our land back. And one of the, the events that happens is um, this letter starts circulating in uh, North Maluku. Uh, it is supposedly written by uh, uh, a Christian pastor, and, it's, and it basically lays out the plans for a Christian takeover of the province. So Niels Bubat, an anthropologist from uh, Aarhus University in, in Denmark, has written a lot uh, about this particular letter. But so this letter starts circulating in Ternate, in Tidore, in the large urban centers of North Maluku. Uh, and it talks about how Christians are going to take over the province. It talks about how you know, they're going to continue the work they've done in Makian. Um, and this is clearly an example of elite manipulation. Somebody took the time to write this letter, to type it up, to print up hundreds if not thousands of copies and distribute them. So some of my friends who are Muslim professors at one of the local universities talked about how just one day they were going to work and there were guys on the street corner handing these out. And they were just, you walk by any business and they were just lumped up in the, and they are just thrown all over the street and they were just everywhere. So clearly this was uh, a plan by someone some group of people to, to instigate this religious violence. And so what my interest is, is why did this make sense? So yes, here is a political science explanation of the violence. The elites picked this fall line and said to everybody, look, it's about religion. This, this, this previous, what you thought was an ethnic conflict was really about religion. And my goal was to say, well, why did everybody believe it? Because um, they, they did. In retrospect, people claim, oh, the letter wasn't real. Only foolish people believe the letter. But when I was interviewing people in 2000, 2001, they are like, yeah, no, the letter was, that was a pretty big deal. We believe that. And it was sort of looking at how that fault line made sense. And that gets back to things I talked about in Chapter 2, about how you always had had a little bit of tension between Muslim and Christian communities. And suddenly now, when this letter's going around, people are talking with Muslims and Christians, and there's this sense of Muslim-Christian violence. And we have to remember, um, because we don't have to remember, I should tell your listeners, that at that same time, to the south of Halmahera, in the province of Maluku, in the town of Ambo, uh, Muslims and Christians had been fighting each other for almost a year. Uh, and then to the west of North Maluku, in the province of North or central Sulawesi, you'd had Muslim-Christian conflict as well. And then, you know, then you'd also have the communal violence in, in Kalimantan between Dayaks and migrants. So you had violence happening all over the country, and you had religious violence happening in neighboring 
provinces. So when you tie all that together with the, the history stuff that I talked about a bit earlier, it started to make sense to people that, wait, okay, you know, it does make sense that you know, Muslims would do this, or it does make sense that religion would do this. And so one of the things I tried to do in the book was to say, um, and then I took this is from Mahmoud uh, Bamdani and his work on the conflict in Rwanda, was the idea that, yes, you can have elite manipulation from above, but that manipulation, it has to make sense to the people that are trying to be manipulated. So there has to be something in that narrative of religious violence that makes sense to the average looking um, Halmaharan farmer or villager for him to say, yeah, okay, that, that does make sense. And my argument is that it did make sense based on, you know, the recent history. Uh, it did make sense that there could be uh, a, a reason for Muslim Christian violence. It didn't make sense to say, oh, the cow got, the cow who are, uh, you know, had been pushed around for decades, had had their land taken by forestry initiatives, mining initiatives, transmigration initiatives. They suddenly got all violent and attacked their neighbors. That doesn't make sense. But, oh, if it's about religion, okay, that can make sense. And so that's what I, I traced out then through the rest of the book is how people took that and said, wait, this does make sense. And, and then they would use that, that even when you came to them with economic explanations of violence or ethnic explanations, they would say, yeah, but really it's about religion. And so that's, to me, that's where religion sort of started taking on its own, uh, its own and you show how the, the narrative continues after the conflict is over in the reconciliation projects and all of the other activities that are designed to restore peace. Can you briefly explain where you take the, the latter chapters of the book in, and deal with also questions of what you describe as the management of memory? Yeah, so one of the, and this, this gets a little bit back to my argument about causation earlier, was when we're talking about this conflict, very rarely as an anthropologist are we there when the violence happens. So yes, I studied uh, communal violence in North Maluku, but I wasn't there when it happened. So I wasn't, you know, I'm not a, a war journalist. So everything that I'm trying to understand is really about trying to understand people's memories uh, of the violence and how people talk about it and how they tended to focus on uh, certain aspects of it and constructing certain types of narratives of the violence as opposed um, to others. And so, uh, and all of that, my argument is, is that that really is where religion comes to be the main focus. So you have the, the initial ethnic conflict. You have other examples of uh, violence being done, obviously, for, for economic reasons. So people would kill people they owe money to uh, across religious lines. Um, so you have examples of that. And you have plenty of examples of Muslims uh, stepping in to save Christians from massacres or of Christians stepping in to save Muslims from Massacres. So, you know, uh, there was a major massacre in a Christian village called Duma, um, and we interviewed one guy who was talking about how after they had defeated the, the, the Christian militia in the church, they brought everybody out and they were starting to, to to kill people. And you had Muslim militia members jumping in and saying, "Oh, you can't kill him. That's my cousin." They were 
pulling their relatives out of the fray to save them. So you have numerous examples of Muslims saving Christians and, and the other way around. But those sort of get swept aside as weird anomalies because Christians make the argument that Muslims are you know, inherently violent. Their religion teaches them to do this, and this is why they do that, and this is why they're violent, and this is why this was about religion. And then Muslims will tell you that Christians are inherently violent, uh, particularly North Moluccan Christians, and this is why the violence was about religion, and this is why it, uh, we see it as about religion, and this is why the original ethnic origins are not important. Um, and so then you you would get people who had suffered violence in different places. They would end up in refugee camps. Uh, they would end up um, in Christian areas or Muslim areas. And they would talk to each other and they would say, well, what happened to you? Oh, well, the Muslims came to my village and did this. What happened to you? Oh, well, the Muslims came and did this. Or in Muslim refugee camps, it would be Christian militias did this or Christian militias did that. And people would find other families, other individuals, other communities that, that sort of shared they had a shared experience, and it's a phrase I borrow from uh, Stephen Stern, who's a historian out of the University of, uh, I think it's Wisconsin-Madison, who works on Chile, and he talks about this notion of emblematic memory, that certain stories, certain narratives come to be emblematic of a certain time period, and it's because they make sense to people. So it's not necessarily that they're true, but it's that they make sense. So the point of my book is not to, to figure out exactly what happened. If this is not to sort of lay out a day-by-day -day chronology of, you know, this happened on this day, this happened on this day, six people were killed here, seven people were killed here. The point of this was to understand why and how local community members who took part of the violence understood the violence, why they took part, and how they remembered it in its aftermath. So... Um, it's not a, this isn't a human rights report to, to lay out what happened. It's just sort of understand, it's about understanding what people think happened. And so this became very uh, important in the aftermath of the conflict because once the violence subsided, everybody was largely in mono-faith communities. And uh, you had to deal with uh, issues of stopping the violence, issues of reconciliation, uh, and issues of going home if you could. And religion, I argue, played a very important role in this in that um, oftentimes people didn't go home because they didn't want to live uh, as a minority uh, religious religion in, in, in where they were before. Lots of people went home and lived as minority religious communities, but a lot some people did not want to go home uh, and do that. Um, and then more importantly, uh, as the violence had stopped but tensions were still abounding, you had certain segments of uh, the North Moluccan community that said, "Wait a second, this is this is not good. We need to we need to stop this. We need to, to, to create some reconciliation between Muslims and Christians. How are we going to do that?" And one of the the uh, the foci was on um, something called adat, which is an Indonesian term, which loosely can be translated as customary law or tradition. So what you had in North Maluku was you had various leaders say, look, we need to stop this focus on religion and return to our traditional identities as Tobelo, as Galela. So the example that I discuss a little bit in the book, but I highlight more in some other publications, is the Tobelo, um, because the Tobelo is an ethnic group that is both Muslim and 
Christian. And what Tibetan leaders decided in the aftermath of the conflict was, look, a hundred years ago, we all got along fine. Whether that's true or not is a moot point. But they argued that a hundred years ago, when we were all just, or 200 years ago, when we were all just Tibello, we got along fine. Suddenly, all these outsiders come in, different forms of Christianity, different forms of Islam. Now we're focused on the fact that I'm a Muslim or I'm a Christian. And they argued we need to get back on this focus that we are Tobello, that we have the shared cultural heritage. And that way, rather than being Muslim Tobello or Christian Tobello, we are Tobello Muslims or Tobello Christians. We're in, we are first and foremost Tobello. And so you had a large number of reconciliation, reconciliation initiatives, both with the Tobello and other parts of the province that focused on this revitalization of tradition to get people to look beyond their religious identities. So here is an example I see of people saying, yes, religion was the problem. And the only way we can get peace is to look beyond religion. So some people were saying, oh, let's get the pastors and the imams from the mosques together. And people were saying, no, 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 those are the guys that cause the problem. Get religion out of here. If we set religion aside, we can, we can, overcome, um, we can overcome these tensions. And then you also see the, the importance of religion in the aftermath. Uh, in North Malukumin, the construction of um, large, in a few places of large-scale memorials, to, to the dead. So in several places where there were large-scale massacres of Christians, you have these large uh, graveyards, which local people call martyr parks, um, where the people who were killed in these massacres are referred to as, as martyrs. They believe that they, you know, they're gained access instantly uh, to heaven because they died in, you know, in protection of their faith. Um, and so you have these markers on the landscape that basically say, yeah, this was about religion. Um, and so one of my favorite examples, favorite's probably the wrong word, but is in, in Tobelo communities, people who died in the service of the Christian communities, people who died during the violence as members of Christian militia are buried in uh, churchyards. So if you go to a church in, say, the village of Koopa Koopa now, there's two martyr graves on the front lawn of the church. And in these communities, the church is the pinnacle of the community. The church sort of is emblematic of how wealthy the community is, how faithful the community is, how great the community is. And here you have these two guys buried in church lawn. And that's incredibly interesting because one of the main goals of the Protestant missionaries when they were in Almahera, was to move graveyards out of the village into the forest because they were scared. They're not scared. They were worried that if you kept the graveyards in the village, people would continue to interact with their ancestors. So if you go to, to Mulligan Village, North Mulligan Villages now, the graveyards are always way off in the middle of nowhere. But in the aftermath of the conflict, people who died during the violence buried in the center of the village in the church, which to me is pretty emblematic of how important their deaths are seen uh, in the community. And then if you go to Muslim uh, graveyards, it's, it's far less uh, monumental, but in Muslim uh, graveyards, people are referred to as, as martyrs. You know, 
you know, they died as martyrs on their gravestones, and, and people see them as uh, gaining, you know, instant access uh, to uh, Muslim heaven, and so they're not they're not concerned. That, yes, my, my brother is in heaven, my cousin is in heaven, and so in the in the aftermath of the violence, you have this all across the landscape of North Blue highlighting, I argue, the religious aspect uh, of. Chris, the book was published in 2013. Have you still been doing field work in North Maluku since? And what are you working on now? What can we look forward to from you in the future? Uh, so now I continue to, to still uh, work on, on the conflict, but more on, on the aftermath, uh, looking at the way people talk about reconciliation and peace. Um, but my new project, hopefully, sort of, ramping it up right now, uh, is to look at um, natural resource extraction and the rise of indigenous rights discourse in North Blue. So one of the things that has happened in the aftermath of the violence is there's been a mining boom in uh, North Blue. So there's, uh, I don't remember the exact number, but there's something like 160 more mining concessions have been given away, signed away on Halmahera, which is a very small island. Um, and a lot of it's nickel, which is strip mining. Um, and you've got Chinese mines, you've got French mines, you've got Russian mines, I've heard of Polish mines, there's Malaysian mines. And so there's just a huge mining boom, and it's having a dramatic impact on indigenous people throughout uh, the province. And it's, it's happening at the same time that you're having this massive growth in an interest in indigenous rights uh, in, well, in Indonesia, but in North Maluku in particular. So in 2012, uh, an organization called Haman, which is the Indonesian Alliance for Indigenous Peoples, they had their national conference. This is the biggest indigenous rights group in all of Indonesia. They had their national conference in Tupelo, which is a huge deal. They brought in like 6,000 indigenous rights activists into a community of, I think it's 35,000 people. And in the aftermath of that, this, the, the focus on indigenous rights in North Maluku is, is just fascinating. Whereas before, if you talked about indigenous peoples, it would always focus on, you know, dancing and costumes and architecture. But now it's about land rights. And so between the mining and uh, now it's a lot of oil palms going in. Um, so looking at, at the, the impact of those two developments, mining and, and oil palms, Indigenous rights discourse and how people are um, responding to that, and still sort of mapping it out. As you can tell, it doesn't sound too too far along yet. But that's that's the goal for the project, and that, and that stems in part because uh, a lot one of the nickel mines is uh, being built on land uh, that, where the, the forest developed. The group that I did my original doctoral work with, the hunters and gatherers, uh, they're going to lose a lot of their land, and they could lose a lot of their land. To, to nickel mines, or in another case, um, an iron ore mine is, might go in right where a, a forest developed community lives. So, sort of looking at some of the conflicts that are that are happening there. Well, we we look forward to another very rich and deep study uh, on those topics when you get around to writing it and have developed the research further. Um, in the meantime, Christopher Duncan, I'd like to thank you very much for joining me today to speak about. Violence and Vengeance, Religious Conflict and its Aftermath in Eastern Indonesia. Well, thank you for having me. 
And thank you, everyone, for listening. I look forward to having you join me again for another meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian studies. And if you have time, you may like to check out some of the other great channels on the New Books Network, such as the New Books in Religion podcast, where this cast will be cross-posted. Hey, thank God, see you at the 10 to vote. Hey, thank God, see you at the 10 to vote.